This is Jane Sigford, and this is Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA with the purpose of sharing the good things that are happening in education across the state of Minnesota. I have interviewed superintendents, teachers, special education directors, directors of teaching and learning, lobbyists, even a legislator, to gather many examples of positive education thoughts and practices. Today's podcast is with Gary Amoroso, retiring executive director of MASA, which he has led for eight and a half years. I wanted to hear Gary's reflections and his projections about what has happened during his tenure and what he sees in the future. As with all of my podcasts, several themes emerged. What you will hear over and over from Gary is his belief in the importance of relationships, his concern for all of the members of MASA and all school districts across the state is the underpinning of our conversations. What also runs through our conversation is the awareness of the political nature of his job and education in general. He outlines some of the future concerns, such as adequate funding for public schools, teacher shortages, and the difficulty in attracting people to our profession. He also demonstrated several of Michael Fullen's co-author of Deep Learning and many other books, Six C's of Global Competencies. More on that later. Let's hear from Gary how he got to where he is today. I started in Wisconsin. It was a traditional pathway. Social studies, coach, got tapped on the shoulder about being an administrator, got that licensure, my master's in specialist in Wisconsin, and then a traditional route, high school assistant principal, then a middle school principal, then a high school principal, then an assistant soup. And my last job in Wisconsin was a superintendency. Got recruited to come to Minnesota. Jim Rickabaugh, a good friend of many in our state. We were friends, and he gave my name to Ken LaCroix. Ken LaCroix called and asked if I'd be interested in Lakeville, Minnesota. I said I was at a point in my life where I was interested in, in that possibility. He said, well, the application's closed today. I said, well, I can't get materials today, so just send me a letter. We hung up the phone, and the first thing I honestly did was, look, where is Lakeville, Minnesota? I had no idea. That's history, a great history. I got the job, 10 years as superintendent in Lakeville. During that time, I did get involved with MASA. I served on various committees. I was fortunate to be elected to the board of directors. Got tapped on the shoulder again to to run for the president-elect position when it was a metro year. and was elected president-elect, served as president, and then in the year that I was the past president, Charlie Kite, who was my predecessor, announced his retirement. Got tapped on the shoulder by a few people to see if I had an interest and expressed an interest. And I went through the process. I was very fortunate to be named executive director and started July 1st of 2011. Out of curiosity, what mm-hmm. do you see similar and different in your experience between Wisconsin and Minnesota? Because we're often compared or sure. contrasted. Sure. In terms of education, I don't see a lot of difference. I think both the Midwestern values I see in both states, very hardworking, dedicated professionals, very hardworking, dedicated just people when you consider work. In our state, we had our fiscal challenges as Minnesota has had. So I really don't, didn't see a lot of, of differences. One area that I would suggest was different is the funding mechanisms in Minnesota are much more, what I would say, complicated compared to the funding mechanism in Wisconsin, where Wisconsin, we had our, our per-pupil amount, and we didn't have a lot of the other silos of funding in Wisconsin. We also 
had a different ways to do our contracts. We had what was called a QEO, a Qualified Economic Offer, back in the day, which basically meant if if a board offered for 7.6 over two years, the board could implement it if it wasn't accepted. And that caused a lot of angst with, with our unions, but it also gave us an opportunity to financially try to stay on the straight and narrow. I remember my first contract in, in Minnesota was 12%. I was like, oh, wow. But that was the norm at the time in our state. And then we started having all of our financial challenges, and we know how that's played out for a lot of districts. Does Wisconsin have, like the Minnesota Miracles, to balance it out within the state? No. More change came to Wisconsin when Scott Walker was elected governor. Something called Act 10 was passed during his first term, and it basically eliminated collective bargaining. It, in my opinion, has created a lot of haves and have-nots. It has created situations where very, very strongly now compete for the, the, the brightest and best in our teaching profession. You can be in a district one day making $35,000, and the next day another district comes and asks you to come to them for 45000 So the whole step and lane concept doesn't really exist in many of those districts. It can exist if a district wants to go in that direction. Uh, but that's created a challenge for some districts that don't have the financial means to compete for the best and, and brightest uh, staff members. I know Illinois bases their funding stream on real estate taxes and property values, mm-hmm. so there's a huge discrepancy between the suburbs of Chicago, mm-hmm. for example, and southern Illinois. Is that what happens in Wisconsin, or do they have a balanced foundation that, like we do? Property taxes is the major source. Our property taxes in Wisconsin were higher than my property taxes in Minnesota for the same value of, of property. I wasn't an expert in that area. I was always very fortunate that I had a business manager in Wisconsin when I was a superintendent, and, and when I was in my other positions, I, I didn't get involved to that level. So I'm not an expert on it, but it just seemed like it was a lot easier in conversations with, with my colleagues. What has been one of the biggest challenges in your role as executive director? I think the biggest challenge has been the fact that MASA represents all of our members in the state, and we want to represent all of our members in the same manner. When you look at the state of Minnesota, you've got very different cultures in different regions of the state. You've got the concept of metro versus greater Minnesota, which I don't subscribe to, but some people still do. One of the biggest challenges has been as we've had conversations about policy issues, as we've had conversations about professional learning, there's a variety of of needs and wants. Part of my responsibility is making sure that we are doing the best job we can in meeting the needs and wants of all of our members. And at times that means blending concepts or blending thoughts to get to a point where we can gain acceptance or gain support by the membership. Our platform is an example of that. During the legislative session, we'll have issues come up. It's not what Gary wants or what Valerie wants, but it's what is our membership thinking on this. And there are times where we have varying perspectives on issues, and that's when I I work with my officers to craft our position that we don't always get 100% support from our members on because they're, they're always working for their school boards, and sometimes there are different perspectives challenge we we face is trying to have as much agreement and meeting 
the needs of as many of our members as we can in terms of all of our work, whether it be advocacy at the state or federal level or in the area of professional learning or any of the other services we provide to our members. Do you see a widening gap in the idea of Greater versus Metro Minnesota as our state has become more politicized politically and we see a migration trend toward the urban areas? In terms of our association, I don't see a widening gap. I see the gap as narrowed. and That has bared out through our conversations throughout the state as well as we do a survey every year. That still trickles in every now and then, but it doesn't trickle in to the extent and we don't have the conversations to the extent that we did, you know, nine years ago. And so I think from an association perspective, we've made good inroads in having every member understand that they're as valued as the person next door or the person 150 miles away. When you look at the overall state, I think some of what you're saying is there. People like to stereotype Greater Minnesota as having one political persuasion and and the Metro having another political persuasion. But that doesn't always hold true. But in terms of our association, I think the entire association, our board, our members, has done a good job of focusing on what's best for for all of us, not just let's be metrocentric, let's be greater Minnesota-centric. We don't subscribe to that, and I think that's not what it used to be in our association. How are districts dealing with small enrollments and yet being able to provide quality programs and services? Is there a fear of more consolidations in the future with some of the smaller districts? We're still approximately half, what I call the seven-county metro area, has about half the students in the state, just over 400,000, and Greater Minnesota still has just over 400,000. In terms of consolidation, we have not seen a lot of that. People want their Friday night lights. People want their uh, name recognition. They, in a smaller community, that is a huge part of the culture, the, the high school programs, co-curricular programs, the arts programs, the music programs. It's their community. Yeah, that as much as anything is a deterrent to districts combining. What we've seen a little bit more of is combining of a superintendent into multiple districts. So we don't combine our systems, but we have a leader, probably can't think of too many off the top of my head, because I don't even know all their names. They're a lot more abbreviated. We have you know, at least a few soups that run three districts because the districts see it as economy of scale, and then those districts do more working together and maybe running programs that draw kids from all of the two or three of the districts. But I've not seen a ton of consolidation in my tenure. I think we're going to see more as time progresses because financially, eventually, people are going to be up against it. Do you see a joining of services with technology? Because some of the interviews mm-hmm. I've done with people in northern Minnesota in particular, the services are electronic or mm-hmm. through technical colleges so kids Absolutely. can stay in their home schools mm-hmm. or... There's pairing between a couple different schools to provide things like AP classes that they may not be able to provide mm-hmm. in person, but they join together. Have you seen much of that? Absolutely. You mentioned the North. Northeast Service Cooperative up on the range has connected all of those districts yeah. in a remarkable fashion. There's been a lot of economic trauma on the range in the last decade, but a lot of those districts have been able to continue to offer quality programs for their students because of this opportunity that the Northeast Service Cooperative put together for them. Plus, they're building a high school that's on Mm -hmm. the border of three districts, which a few years ago, according Mm -hmm. to Patty Phillips, whom I interviewed, Mm -hmm. could never have happened. 
I think people are seeing what their options are. If we don't do something creative and collaboratively, we may disappear. This is an option that, you know, as Patty said, they wouldn't look at 10, 10 years ago because they wanted their own programs. But now, if we can survive and keep our kids here and offer quality, it's a good option. What's the most fun part about your job? Easy. Most fun part about my job is working with our members, traveling around the state. I've been so blessed. I've been to places I never would have gone to, <laughs> quite frankly. You've uh, been to Barris and Climax, Minnesota? I have not, but I've been to, uh, I've been all the way up to Baudette, mm. Moorhead, you know, International Falls, Avoca, which is in southwestern mm. Minnesota. Uh, that's the part of the job I truly love, is being with our members, being in their turf, hearing what's going on in their part of the world. And as I mentioned earlier, our state is so diverse. There is the flavor and culture from area to area. And that truly is what I enjoy most about this job has been that opportunity to, to get to know people, to create friendships that will last long beyond my tenure. Just be a support to them as they're doing good work for kids. Uh, but I, I enjoy it. One of my aunts, my mother's sister's husband, worked in the mines in Chisholm. When I first went up there in 2011, told that story, I had members in the room who knew my cousin. They'd gone to school with her. And so there's always connections. There's always connections in our world. When you first started, what was a key learning for you or something about which you had no clue? The challenges our members face in terms of uh, legal challenges I didn't realize the number of members on a yearly basis who call us and we provide support for, uh, whether it be challenge from the board and the member, whether it be complaint filed with the, the board of with BOSA. And the reason why I wasn't aware of it is we try and keep those quiet. We try and resolve those issues. And so I walked into this position and it was like, wow. We have a lot of people that are challenged on a yearly basis. And the other wow was... Is that grown, by the way? I think it's grown in my... This is my ninth year, and we used more little resources last year than we had in any of my prior seven years. So in my eighth year, we, we used the most dollars. And this year started off. <laughs> We've already used some resources. And the other area would be the legislative process. I knew the process in terms of I know how bills get made, I know when the legislature meet, but I didn't have a good grasp of the grassroots, what goes on behind the scenes. And that's been a learning experience for me, and, and I've enjoyed it more as I've learned more and as I've made connections at the Capitol with various legislators and other lobbyists. Uh, but that was a, a learning curve also for me. Joe Gothard the other day at Great Start talked about his knowledge of superintendents around the United States having lost their jobs or moved on because of the anger from the community about some of their equity work. And some people have left after two years or whatever, mm -hmm. and how the work is really difficult and they get awful emails and tweets. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that in our area? There are, there are probably at least three to four superintendents that have either lost their positions or are currently battling board slash community because of the work that they've done in the world of, of, of equity. Absolutely. 
I have to say that makes me sad. You know, we're, we're going to be in 2020, but not everybody's thinking is in 2020. Do you see the role of the executive director changing in the future? I don't know if I see the role changing as much as I see the need for the association to continue to evolve and prosper, which is the responsibility of the executive director. Uh, so whoever comes in on July 1st, as when I went in on July 1st of 2011, we're in a good spot as an association. We were in a good spot in 2011. I think we're in a good spot in 2019 and will be in 20. But the needs of our members are changing. The world of education at the federal and state level continues to evolve. And as an association, I think we need to continue to evolve in order to meet the needs of our members, in, in order to continue to be at the table of the legislative conversations at the state level, not the federal level. And I see that really being the task of the executive director and working with the board and working with the members and working with the community and working with the legislatures to continue to make sure that, that MASA is relevant to their members, relevant in the conversation about education policy. We continue to be challenged in terms of the thought of public schools not doing the job. That's out there. On a yearly basis at the federal level, we'll see bills that talk about vouchers, that talk about tuition tax credits, that talk about things that will eventually cause there to be less resources for public schools, and I think that's damaging. We have the whole conversation about the teacher shortage, which is very challenging in our state, as well as, as I talk to my colleagues around the country, it's, it's an extremely challenging. And that shortage has already, in my opinion, reached the superintendent ranks. It's reaching the principal ranks. It's reaching bus driver ranks. It's reaching instructional aides. The whole world of education is challenged. You talk to your colleagues at the post-secondary level, the number of people going into this field is, is shrinking. We have licensure programs or licensure requirements in the state of Minnesota that no longer have any Minnesota college or university offering that licensure. For example? There are some areas in special ed, I'm not an expert in that, but, but I know that's, that's occurring, where there's a certain licensure or two for special ed, and there's no more programming for it. But aren't there fewer universities even offering special ed licensure as a... Big picture? That I don't know for a fact, but I would suggest you're probably right. You, know, you look at the whole world of family and consumer science. You look at the whole world of industrial technology. You're seeing less and less opportunities, but yet those are programs that were still viable in our schools. Uh, ag. In greater Minnesota, I hear from my colleagues, it's tough to find an ag teacher. You can't find an ag teacher. So I think that is going to continue to be a challenge. How do we re-energize our youth to look at public schools, to look at that career as being one that they want to pursue and not a, well, I couldn't do anything else, so I'm going to go be a teacher. Or I'm going to, okay, well, I'm going to try being a principal. We need the best and brightest, and that's challenging right now to us. And that's more than just MASA's issue. That's an issue for, I think, this whole state. 
Recently in the Star Tribune, there was a story about the Texas Department of Education that is taking over the Houston Public Schools and they are appointing a school board to oversee this effort. Texas law has given the state the power to close a school that had not met the standards for four years in a row or take over the entire system. They chose the latter rather than closing a certain school. People in the community are up in arms about the loss of control over their school, fearing that the appointed board will not reflect the needs and diversity of the district. What's your take on this story? I would assume the advantage would be from the perspective of the state that the individual school districts are failing and that the state will be able to come in and be more effective and efficient in providing students with the education they need. I would think that's their thinking. I'm not agreeing with it, but I would think that's their thinking. But the bigger and the further removed things get away from kids, we know that that's usually Absolutely. less and less effective. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't subscribe to that thought that takeover is in the best interest. I believe in local control. I believe in communities and educators working together and doing what they feel is best. They know what's best for their communities far more than than uh, somebody sitting in St. Paul or somebody sitting in Houston. Of course, we have our own State Department of Education. Is there a way that MDE could serve school districts better? I want to compliment uh, Brenda Caselius, who was our commissioner for eight years, because Brenda had a focus of taking the department from being one of a regulatory agency to a service agency. I saw movement in that direction. I had members who shared that thought. So I think that was a positive. A lot of good things happened. I know Commissioner Ricker wants to continue in that vein. We're hoping that that will continue. I don't know what else they could do for us. You know, we've got the regional centers of excellence now, which are available for districts to, to partner with and to work with. We have our new, our new assessment model, our new accountability model that not only provides for schools that are challenged, but is one that provides praise for schools and celebrations for schools. I still think there's a thought that MDE at times is there to hold us accountable in a way that's it's not right, but that's just part of being uh, the State Department. That's part of their responsibility. In our current climate of accountability, I worry about pedagogy and curriculum taking a back seat to test scores, data workshops, report cards. Michael Fullen and others talk about the four elements necessary for a learning system, and they are having learning partnerships, effective learning environments, leveraged technology, and effective pedagogical strategies. Fullen believes we've neglected pedagogy the most. I talk about this in the podcasts about deeper learning and teaching, and we'll talk more about it in the upcoming podcast about learning leaders. As to MDE, years ago, MDE had curriculum resource specialists that were available to districts as we went through curriculum review processes. MDE used to host regular meetings around the state for curriculum leaders around pedagogical issues. There used to be several active curriculum leader networks around the metro even. MASA used to host a curriculum leaders conference annually. None of that happens anymore. Some districts have replaced their curriculum leaders with technology staff. Others don't have curriculum people on their cabinets. When curriculum instruction or teaching and learning, whatever you call it, is the essence of what schools are about, I worry about this change and see this as a possible opportunity for the education state to once again take leadership in this area. Part of why I think they've gone away at MDE is 
prior to this past budget that Governor Wall signed, the MDE budget had been slashed. And I think no different than a school district, when the budget gets slashed, generally people are eliminated. MDE went through some very challenging times where their budgets were 5 to 10% eliminated. That caused them to have to make tough decisions, just as school districts have to make tough decisions when they don't have the resources. I think they're still recovering from that. Depending on what happens in the next election, in the next biennium, hopefully that can continue to, to evolve in a positive direction. They just got the dollars, I think, to upgrade the technology infrastructure at MDE. The system is older than old. They never could get the resources. Now they've got the resources. So I'm hoping that over time what has occurred to MDE can be reversed. Then I would suggest that they will reassess how they can be more of a resource and support for districts. And the type of things you mentioned may hopefully could come back and even be better. What do you see as the biggest challenge for the new director? I think we've talked a little bit about it, just continuing to meet the needs of the membership. The membership's evolving. I think that our younger members have some different thoughts on professional learning and engagement than our more seasoned members. I think we're going to have to to look at how do you meet their needs? Uh, What are their needs? The whole conversation about the legislature and politics, that's not going away. That could become even more intense in terms of partisanship. The new executive director is going to have to work with the other organizations, work with the members to continue to ensure that MASA is viewed as a viable source for support and information at the Capitol. Just working every day to make sure that every member knows that they're valued, that we're here to assist and work with you. And then, as I mentioned also earlier, to look at what we're currently doing across the board in all of our services and say, how do we grow to the next level? How can we take it to that next area of efficiency or of effectiveness because I've always felt that if you're changing, you're dying. If you're not changing, you're dying. And so I think you got to grow. And not change for change's sake, but, but grow because it's what's in the best interest of your members. MASA is known for providing professional development for superintendents. What type of professional development do our new superintendents want and need? There seems to be a segment of, of our new members that, that don't value the, the statewide conference concept. I've had people you know, share with me, well, I can't be away. I need to be at my system. I need to be at the district. And I think that's a, a challenging concept because you need time to, to grow. You need time to learn. We need to model that for our systems. We need to model that for our school boards. We need to model that for our professional and support staff. That it is okay to be away for a period of time because nowadays you can connect anyways. So it's not as if you're disconnected and you can't be part of it. But I think it's also important for our new people to be part of being involved with their colleagues around the regions. That's important. We have support networks for people, and there are people that don't take advantage of it. That's diminished, hasn't it? Yeah. They're not taking advantage of the support networks. Again, I don't know why. I think sometimes people think that if I reach out, that shows weakness, or I think that shows strength in knowing that there might be an area that you aren't an expert in and to reach out to your colleague to learn from them doesn't mean you have to do what they did but you gain a perspective that you may not have thought of I think that's important so I'm hoping that the association continues to offer those opportunities but 
We are also offering a lot of different things. Your posts are a different way of learning. The videos we do are a different way. The book blog, a lot of different things to provide people with if they have a different learning style or if they aren't able, for whatever reason, to go to the conferences. More emphasis on our regions. Uh, and we have nine regions. Every region functions differently. Sometimes our regions struggle with engagement also from all of their members. Those are things that the new... We talked about this at our board meeting yesterday. How do we involve all of our membership in activities, not just, quote-unquote, the superintendent component group, but all of our component groups? That'll be, I know whoever takes over will continue to focus on that as we've tried to and hopefully do a better job than we've done in that area. Several people I've interviewed for the podcast have talked about the value of camaraderie and sharing, going out together with peers to have a hamburger and to get ideas and just to spend time together. What do you think of that? I agree. I think that is a huge loss for our members that don't subscribe to that. And I'm not saying you got to go out every month with the boys and girls or you have to go to every conference, but I think there's value in, in associating with your colleagues. Use that wisdom, use that strength that they have. How is MASA a voice of leadership for education in our state? Well, I think we're a leader simply because our members are the leaders. Our members are the leaders within their school systems. Our members are the educational leaders within their communities. As a result of that, you may not always see it, you may not always hear it, but people watch you, people listen to what you're saying. Our friends at the Capitol want to know what their superintendents are thinking. They want to be able to say, I've talked to my superintendent, and the superintendent says X, Y, or Z. I hear that from legislators constantly. Legislators on the floor of the House and the Senate will say, I've talked to my superintendents, and here's what we're hearing. I think that because of the, the role of what our members do, that adds validity from day one. And then we as an organization have to take that validity and use it wisely, working in a collaborative fashion with the other education organizations. Because when we're at the Capitol, the more often we can speak with one voice, the stronger voice will be heard. And we work hard to do that. There are times where different organizations have different perspectives. Then we still have to put out our thoughts and our concepts that just by the work that our members do on a day-to-day basis, that adds to the validity of our not only the organization but our members having a crucial voice in the role of policy in our state. And we try and capitalize on that at the Capitol. How do you work with all the other educational organizations? Well, we work with, with all of the organizations, elementary, secondary principals, school board association, AMSDC, Education Minnesota, MREA, and I've probably missed a few, the chambers, the, the business partnership. We try and, and we don't always agree on everything, but we try and at least have conversations so that we understand what each other is doing. I'll be going to a meeting beginning of January of all the ed orgs because we'll have all of our, we'll have all of our platforms done, and then we'll sit and we'll talk. With all of the organizations? With all of the organizations. We'll sit and talk. There are times that we'll make decisions as to, MASA, you'll take the lead on this bill. School boards, you'll take the lead on this bill. 
you know, we don't, as I said, always agree, and, and that's part of the conversation is, is trying to understand what's going on. At the Capitol, the Ed Orgs are known as the cartel. That's what we're called by the legislature. The legis- that's not a necessarily positive, is it? We view it as positive. Do you? Okay. <laughs> but we're viewed as, you know, the cartel, because we're the education cartel, because we are all at every policy and every finance hearing in the House and Senate. All of us are there. There could be a connotation of negativity there, but I view it as as our legislators knowing that we work together, that we are there to advocate for the public school students in the state of Minnesota, and we're going to continue to advocate. We're going to be there every day. And so I see that as a positive. Can you describe MASA's work in creating and bringing forward a legislative platform? When we had our policy committee hearing this year, and that's our largest committee, we had we had about 50-plus people this year working on the platform. We always do a review of the prior year's platform. We do a review of what we were successful in initiating from the platform, where we struggled and why. There are areas sometimes that get zero traction, and we, we go through that. We have Valerie then go through what she sees as a prognosis for the coming session. This year, by example is a more of the policy and bonding year versus the the finance year. We already have our budget in place for next year. The legislature doesn't have to do anything. And so as you're crafting your platform, you want to keep those things in mind so that you create a platform that's realistic. By example, to go into a second year of the biennium and say we want another 3% on the formula. That's unrealistic. That will get zero attention. In fact, people will think that you're out to lunch. We try to create a platform, depending upon what the situations are in the state, what the needs of the, of the membership are, in a real sense versus being out in la-la land. And I think we've done that this year with our platform. On those platforms, do you ever put something on the platform that's kind of like a wish, that's kind of like planting a seed for future Absolutely. discussions? Uh, we, we put a, and I don't have the exact wording, but we put on the concept two years ago. It was on last year, it's on again this year to empower school boards to be able to make decisions regarding a a student's education and what needs to be done for them to quote-unquote graduate. I won't call it competency-based, but that could be an example, that it wouldn't have to exclusively be the Carnegie Unit concept, seat time concept, but different ways that students could demonstrate their skill sets and could matriculate through a system, not in the lockstep. That's been on our platform for three years. We continue to have that conversation. That's going to be a long haul for a lot of people. Last year, we there was a bill we supported that talked about competency education that did have a hearing in the Senate, did not have the hearing in the House, but it's going to be back again this year, so we continue to have those conversations. You try and have the building blocks, absolutely. Just for the listener's information, twice Gary has mentioned Valerie. Valerie is the lobbyist for MASA from Ewald Consulting. Gary also mentioned a platform item that talked about school board authority that was there last time and is on there again this time. The exact wording of that platform item is provide all public school boards the flexibility to determine district educational decisions, including graduation requirements. Gary and I then got into a discussion about changing in school funding, which is something near and dear to my heart. Currently, 
Tom Melcher is heading up a finance task force that was called for it through the last budget. I mean, it was agreed upon by the governor and the legislature to look at the funding formula, the funding streams in Minnesota, to go back to what I said earlier about the complexity, to try and simplify the formula and try and simplify the entire funding mechanism, not just the formula, but the entire funding mechanism. That group is currently meeting. That group will will continue to meet over the course of this year. We may see some recommendations as early as this session, but I would think you'll probably see more of a package for the 21 session, which will be the first year of the next biennium, which is the funding year. When we started talking about funding and the idea of school boards being able to decide criteria of graduation other than the Carnegie unit, I was able to share with Gary an idea of mine that I've had for a long time. My belief is that if schools were paid based on learning, we would have students being taught at their instructional level, they would have to master standards before moving on to the next level, they would know precisely what they need to learn, there would be no achievement gap, and there would be an incentive for teachers to make certain that all students have learned what they are supposed to. How would it work? Schools would receive their foundation aid when a student had achieved a year's worth of growth in reading, math, and perhaps science. Some students would make two years of growth in a school year. Some would make one, and some would not even make a year's worth of growth. Some would take longer. At the elementary students, that means that students would be with their intellectual peers in reading, math, and science, and with their age mates in art, music, FIED, and other specials. Kids would know exactly what they had to learn before they could move on. Some elementary parents have worried that their children wouldn't be with their teacher, but if you think about it, elementary students over the course of a week already have six or maybe more teachers if you include the specialists that they see. At middle and high school, again, students would know what they needed to learn in those core areas. They'd be taught at their instructional level, not their age, and would be with their age mates in many areas. Currently, Jal Maida and Sarah Fine have found that around 50% of our high school juniors and seniors are relatively disengaged from schools. What if we could change that and kids would be engaged much like the competencies suggested by the MASA platform? As juniors and seniors, students could demonstrate their knowledge in a wide variety of ways. They would use what they'd learned in core classes and they would extend it to real life with such things as doing research projects, community service, internships with businesses, exchange programs, traditional ways, many different ways. The advantage would be that students are learning at their instructional level whether they are gifted or a little wobbly in some areas. Districts would receive the same amount of money if a student graduated at 16 or at 21 And with some of our newcomers who may need extra time to master certain content as they learn English, the American culture, and our content, we would produce more well-educated citizens. We would not need extra staffing. We would have to utilize our teachers differently and work with our teachers and community to change what Larry Cuban from Stanford has called the grammar of schooling. It means that we would have to change our idea of what a school day would look like. And that is a major change, yes, but it would also bring us into the 21st century and would hold us truly accountable for kids to learn. 
Gary listened to my ideas and then offered his words of wisdom. Well, I would suggest nothing like that's going to pass this year because we're in an election year. <laughs> but is it a seed that can be planted someplace? Yeah. Well, as I said, you know, the, the seed was planted, you know, this competency thing's been planted for a few years. Right. And what you're talking about is basically that it is that type of a, of a concept. You talk about competency at the older level for kids, and you talk mm-hmm. about secure skills for the kids yeah. that need the secure skills. What do you see as the role of the superintendent in the future? I still think superintendents will be the leader within their systems. I don't see the role of superintendent going away. I understand there are models out there that talk about groups of staff running schools, being in charge of schools. I understand that. I see that. But when a system has to take into account the whole system, not just a school or not just a grade or not just a subject area, one of the roles of superintendent is to advocate for every child, for every staff member for the entire system. That is a role that's not going to go away. I don't see that going away. As long as we have school boards, which I don't see going away either, you need to have the person that can be the conduit between what's going on within the system and that board. You need that person. I think the superintendent will continue to be a vital position to influence the what goes on within the system for, for educating kids. It'll be a vital role, continue to be a vital role for working with the board, having the board have a good sense because I watched the blurb yesterday at MSBA's conference coming up in January. They had a little video out and a couple of the board members said, we aren't experts, so we rely on our staff. We rely on our professionals. That's a wise statement, and I think the superintendent's got to be the lead in that area. There's got to be a bottom line of accountability and I would hope that that a superintendent if he or she is doing their job empowers the people they work with to make decisions to make recommendations to help them learn because there is no one that can know it all when I was in Lakeville I had 11,000 students I had at the height 1,700 staff I had Nine elementaries, three middles, two high schools, area learning center, community education facilities. There was no way I could know it all or do it all. That's where you have the quality people, the trusted people, the people that are there advocating for students and staff. But I still think the bottom line is you need a bottom line. Leadership positions are difficult. A good leader has many skills, and one of the skills may be the wisdom and the ability to delegate to others. Some are better at this than other people. Can we teach this skill of delegation? That is part of the concept of I'm afraid to show that I don't know something. Heck, I always wanted the best and brightest around me. I wanted people a whole heck of a lot smarter than me (laughs) to be working with me because then I knew I could trust them and I knew that they were on the same page as I was. We had the same philosophies. I don't know how you can teach that. Sometimes experience is the best teacher, and sometimes we have to fall or fail to realize that we need to rethink our philosophy or rethink our strategies. I mean, that's why as an association we have our component groups. We're not just the superintendents. Our directors are teaching and learning, technology, the other, uh, the uh, central office component group. Our business partners are part of our association, our special educators because we view it as not being siloed, but being a collaborative effort within the system. 
And in Minnesota, the average district's under 1,000 kids. So we're talking about most districts don't have what I had in Lakeville, what you had in Wyzetta. They've got themselves and maybe a principal and maybe a bookkeeper. And so there's where some of that thought of I have to know it all comes in. That's why we encourage our people to interact with their colleagues who, who can, that goes back to the earlier conversation about relying on your colleagues, relying on your network, building your network. Governor Walls wants us to be the education state again. Mm-hmm. What would that look like? Well, Governor Walls has his plan. Well, how do we fit into that plan then? He just reinstituted the children's cabinet, which has been, it hasn't been there for a few years. So I know the governor feels strongly about early childhood education and making sure that every child begins the quote-unquote K-12 system on, on good footing. I know the governor's view of that is not just the view of the education component, but the housing component, the financial component, nutrition component. So the governor sees a very well-rounded opportunity and a well-rounded experience for children during those early childhood years so that as they walk into a K-12 system, we don't have the deficits that we see now with some kids coming in at one level and other kids in poverty or are homeless. So I know he wants to attack all those things. I think he wants to see us make sure that we have the whole world of career tech, that whole world, to continue to expand and realize that when you look at research, while I know my mom was guilty of this, we're all going to college. She made it clear. Her six kids were going to college. She never got out of past high school, but all six were going to college. That thought still is prevalent too often. We have so many other opportunities for students to make just very good livings, to be successful, to be contributors to our society. And sometimes we try to pigeonhole them into college, and then a couple years later, they realize this isn't for me. We had Dakota County Technical College when I was in Lakeville. I believe the average age of the student was 27 years old. Had gone through college or had just bounced around jobs and then realized, here's what I really want to do. I know our governor wants to see kids walking into the systems on a level playing field, a quality playing field. Wants to make sure that we're doing everything on a daily basis to, to meet their needs, provide opportunities beyond the quote-unquote four-year college track. Heck, if we could do all those things, meet the, meeting the needs of every student, and those needs are different. And that's where we go back to what you talked about earlier, competency versus seat time. Along those lines, we have several districts around the state of Minnesota who are involved in a program called COMPASS, which is an experiential career studies program for highly motivated juniors and seniors. Students can earn high school credit and college credit and explore career paths and work side-by-side with professionals actually in the workplace. It's an exciting program to keep kids engaged and learning. Keeping learners engaged is important. Going, you know, we, that's why we sponsored the first Innovation Zone bill that passed in the state, and there's been a second bill now. But the next step is this conversation about allowing school boards to make some decisions away from the Carnegie units, other exactly. methods, other demonstrations. We're not advocating for students not having some type of an assessment or, or having an accountability system. We're just thinking you can, we can revision a different accountability system. And I call that changing the conversation from accountability to learning. As we ended our conversation, I asked Gary for some final words of wisdom. Well, I think we've got a, a great education system that can continue to improve. Part of my 
job takes me around the country to meet with my counterparts from the 50 states. When I hear some of the challenges they're facing, I come back and feel blessed and know that our educators, whatever your role is within the school district, we're doing great work for kids. Can we get better? Absolutely. Do we have to get better? Absolutely. But when I see what's going around, (laughs) what's happening around the country, uh, we're in a lot better position to grow and improve than, than a lot of other states. Just on a personal note, these last eight and a half years and the next six months have been really the crowning jewel of my career. I'm in my 43rd year of this business. I never would have thought that an opportunity like this would have presented itself. The people I've gotten to know, the relationships I've built, the places I've seen, I've just been blessed. Today's podcast with Gary Amoroso, retiring executive director of Minnesota Association of School Administrators, was another opportunity to hear about the dedication of Minnesota educators at all levels. Earlier I mentioned Michael Fullen's six global competencies that he sees as necessary for all students. Those competencies are character, citizenship, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity, and were all evident in this conversation with Gary. Gary said it well with his closing remarks as he said, I've just been blessed. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net if you have questions or comments. Thanks very much for listening.